1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which it is to be, but bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies, and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as in the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Proceeded. As we go through our exposition of the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, we have been noticing that the whole chapter deals with the nature of the resurrection, the importance of the fact that not only do men rise from the dead, but particularly the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. And the significance of that is the, the the point of the whole chapter 15. In Corinth, apparently, as we have seen, there are those who were skeptics of the resurrection, much like the Sadducees in Jesus' day, who denied the fact that men rise from the dead. And, if you notice in verse 33, the context of that verse, it is very frequently used, bad company, uh, corrupts good morals is in the context of the bad company being those who deny the resurrection. That's the bad company that Paul is saying you got to avoid because ideas carry consequences. Doctrines carry uh, impacts on how you live your life. Don't hang around those who teach uh, these ideas, particularly who deny the resurrection of men and of Jesus. Now, the method that Paul has used in 1 Corinthians 15 is to basically stand on the argument of the skeptic, the one who's denying the resurrection, for the purpose of showing the absurdity or the terrible consequences of believing what they believe and what would be the result. For example, what would be the result if there is no resurrection at all? And he does this 
if you recall in verses 12 through 19, that if, if no man lies at all, then that means Jesus is a man and he didn't rise from the dead. And if Christ isn't risen from the dead, what's the impact? We are yet in our sins and we will perish in our sins because that means that the Christian life is basically meaningless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And that means, as Paul says, we preachers, for example, it can refer to Christians, but him particularly as a preacher, he says, we are all men most to be pitied. Because we're preaching uh, something that's not true if, men don't, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead. Pity, why? Why would men pity us if there's no resurrection from the dead? Well, we're living for a lie. And being a Christian, as you know, historically bore a lot of risks, did it not? There have been a lot of martyrs in the faith for believing in Jesus Christ. Proclaiming the gospel has always been a risky venture. There have been people who have died. We share some of those martyr stories Last week. And if, if all of this is not true, meaning no men rise from the dead, and Jesus isn't risen from the dead, we are to be pitied because we're wasting our time. If this is all that we have, then do you notice in verse 32, we dealt with last week what Paul says. Here's the implication if there's no resurrection. If the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What he did was take the Epicurean philosophy, because that's what they taught. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There used to be a commercial years ago for beer, Schlitz. said, you only go around once in life, grab all the gusto. As if that's all the gusto is to drink Schlitz beer. <laughs> but the idea that... You only go around once in life. And what Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, this is all that you have. This life is it. Well, if this is all that you have, then you might as well make the most of it. Why bother living a Christian life, really, if it makes no difference? Especially if you're going to die for it. Because people will put you to death for believing these things. So, sacrificing and suffering for a lie is ridiculous. And that's what Paul is saying. If there's no resurrection, then all the sacrifices of Christians are to no avail. If Christianity is not true, and if it is not true, then Christ has not been risen from the dead, then might as well live it up. Whatever you want to do, do it. doesn't matter what it is, do it. There are no consequences. If there's no judgment, if there's no judgment day, then why, why live, quote, a moral life? Hey, I was there as a young person. I didn't grow up in a distinctly Christian home, though it was a good home, you could say. And as a young person, I was on the outside because I didn't, I didn't do what a lot of young teenagers did. And I didn't have a reason not to do it. I tried to live a moral life. That's why I always referred to myself as a moral heathen. 
I went to college, I was really out because I wouldn't associate with the wild crowd. But then I wasn't a Christian, so why am I trying to do this? And that's why I had no meaning in life. It didn't make sense, my attempts to try to live, quote, a moral life. I didn't have a basis to do that. I was an agnostic. Didn't believe you could prove God existed. So why am I trying to live that kind of life if it really doesn't matter after all? And that's what Paul's saying. If there is no resurrection from the, from the dead, then live it up. But the reality here is, and people may say this. Now, they could respond and say, well, there is a purpose for morals, even though we don't believe in Jesus. Uh, morals do matter to live in the world. Uh, if you want to live with peace with your neighbor, I mean, you can't just go out and just steal things from him and get him mad at you. Well, you can't do all this stuff. You might get him mad at you and no telling what he'll do. So that, that's an incentive, uh, at least not to do that. But here's the point. What if you can lie and get away with it? What if you can steal and get away with it? What if you can commit adultery and get away with it? Or kill somebody and get away with it? If there is no resurrection, if Christianity isn't true, and remember, one of the major tenets of Christianity is not only Christ crucified, but risen from the dead. You have to believe that Christ was crucified, and you have to believe he was raised from the dead. Otherwise, the scripture says you're not a Christian. Those are the two fundamental parts of the gospel. So, if you can get by, if you can get away with it, you might as well do it because there are no consequences. And that's what Paul is doing. Again, he's, and let me say this for the record and those that may be listening, you know, in the future on Sermon Audio, I'm using this as an example, like Paul, of those consequences that would come from denying the resurrection. Now, regarding those denying the resurrection, Paul refers to them how does he refer to them? Look at verse 35 and 36. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. In other words, what Paul is saying is, it is foolish not to believe in a resurrection from the dead. Now, regarding <clears throat> why is it foolish? Well, it's foolish not to believe in the resurrection of the dead because it is true. That's why it's foolish. Men do rise, are going to rise from the dead. Jesus is risen, despite whether you believe it or not. Truth is truth. Now, how do we know that? Because, I'll do the, I won't sing the little jingle, but because the Bible tells me so. Because the Bible says so. That, there is, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And remember what Jesus told the Sadducees in Matthew 22, verse 29. The Sadducees was that religious sect in Israel that denied the resurrection of men. And they, they tried to trap Jesus with a question about a woman whose uh, husbands uh, die and whose husband is she in heaven. And Jesus responds by saying, You err." Because you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. That was his response. 
You err by not believing in the resurrection of the dead because you're denying the scriptures. See, that's all you need to have. And you're denying the power of God. Who says that God can't cause people to rise from the dead? God can do anything. And he has done mighty things. Remember Jesus in Romans 1.4, it says he was declared the son of God by being raised from the, from the dead. He, wasn't the, he was already the son of God. He was declared the son of God with power at his resurrection. So Paul basically has done this in his methodology. He's carried out a biblical apologetic, if I may say. And here's the biblical apologetic. It's found in Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. You can turn there if you want, but here's what it says. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you shall be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves lest he be wise in his own eyes. And when you look at that, you may think, well, it seems to be repeating itself. No, it's not. Here's what it's saying. Do not not answer a fool according to his folly. As we've already said, it is foolishness, Paul says, not to believe in a resurrection. It's Foolishness, not to believe in a God, because the proverb says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, to answer a fool according to his folly, which we are commanded not to do, is to stand on the argument premises, if we may say presuppositions, of the unbeliever, grant him the legitimacy of his ground, and then try to defend the faith on that basis. The scripture says, don't do that. There are going to people, they're going to say, well, the, the Bible cannot be inerrant. Surely, surely there is one error in the Bible. What if there is a mistake there? I remember I told you about the story of the guy that was upset about me when I gave him that book on Do You Know the Gospel? And what was so upsetting was he thought it was too absolutistic. And he was trying to get me to admit for a half hour, that there could possibly be, come on, John, there could be at least one possibility the Bible could be an error, and I wasn't yielding an inch because I knew what was at stake. You give in there on the, the, a mistake in the Bible, then how do you know, how do you know that nothing else is impacted? I talked with liberal preachers before who didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And, I, and to this one man, I ask him, then, how, what, what part of the Bible do you believe to be true? And Because if there's a mistake, he says, well, there is one place. I said, well, what is it? Uh, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Uh, the golden rule. Oh, really? And my next question was, how do you know that is true? If I'm going to stand on your basis. How do you know that is true? How do you know that is a mis- not a mistake? Why are you just picking and choosing out of the Bible what you want to believe? So we don't stand. Uh, there are some that says there is the probability that Christianity may not be true. Well, 
Van Til, the theologian, and, and one of his disciples, Greg Bonson, have said, we argue from the impossibility of the contrary, meaning there is no possibility that the Scripture is wrong. None. There is no mistake. None. Is there a resurrection? Absolutely. Why? Because the Bible says so. Well, you're depending everything on the Bible. You perceived correctly. Because I believe the Scriptures and the revelation of God. And so what we see, we don't want to argue that way. However, it does say in, in that Proverbs, it says, if you recall, the text says, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what you do there is you, t- you stand on his premise, and that's what Paul did, did he not? He stood on the basic argument of those that denied the resurrection and said, all right, here's the outcome. The outcome is not what many of us would like. Because the outcome is, then life is meaningless. Then we're, to be, uh, we're still in our sins, and we're to be pitied. That's the outcome. So, in this sense, when you, you answer a fool as his folly deserves, you may stand for a moment with his arguments only for the purpose, only for the purpose of showing how they are in error. Now, for example, one of the great lies of our time, and one that is unfortunately taking hold in, even in the visible church is the, the view of uh, evolution, biological evolution. Now, Darwin taught, what is the basic premise of evolutionary thought? How do species evolve and become new species? Survival of the fittest was the modus operandi. It's the law of the jungle. All right? And if it's the law of the jungle, if that's the way it really is, then if lying, stealing, committing adultery, killing, whatever it is, is what it takes to make you survive, then do it. Then do it. That's the implication of evolutionary thought. That's where Adolf Hitler took it in Nazi Germany. That is where he took it. And we saw where that led, not only in Germany, but a world war. Now, Paul says, so what he does, he stands upon their arguments who deny the resurrection, and he shows the foolishness of believing that. And he says... You fool. Now, you may say, wait a minute. Is Paul violating the principle in Matthew 5.22 where it says you're not to call your brother Raka? Meaning, there are various ways you can interpret that, Raka. There it, it says you don't call your brother a fool. Or here's the other translations. A blockhead. A good for nothing. Uh, <clears throat> a worthless person. That's what Raka means. Now, what is the context there? Sinful anger fits in with what we're talking about in the larger catechism. In sinful anger, to call your brother you good for nothing, and you have this hatred in your heart, Jesus says you've committed murder, 
and you're in danger of the fires of hell. He's not talking about the foolishness of certain beliefs. The whole book of Proverbs, I trust that you know, is a contrast between what? The fool and the wise man and the exhortations not to be the fool. And so what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians, it is foolish to deny the resurrection from the dead. Now, in denying the the resurrection of the dead, again, he's standing on their their premise and showing the folly of it. Now, we, we mentioned in Acts 17, when Paul was dealing with the Stoic philosophers and the Epicurean philosophers, And remember, the Epicurean philosophers are the ones who said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They, along with the Stoics, but for different reasons, did not believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe there was anything beyond this. This was it. That was their philosophy. As we said, did that stop Paul from preaching Jesus? No. And what did he preach to them? In Acts 17... Verses 30 and 31, here's what Paul said to them. He said this to those who didn't believe it. God has fixed the day by which he will judge all men through one man, Jesus Christ, whom he furnished proof of by raising him from the dead. Now, that was Paul's argument. To those who said, I don't believe it. You ever had non-Christians just say to you, I just don't believe what you say. Now, is that supposed to shut you down? Well, it shouldn't. Just because you don't believe in something doesn't make it not true. And just because men don't believe Jesus to be who he is doesn't mean he's not the Son of God. Because they don't believe in the gospel doesn't mean the gospel is not true. The point here is that God has fixed a day of judgment through the Lord Jesus. Jesus is really risen from the dead, and there is a judgment day to which everything is moving. Everything in history is moving to that great day. Are you ready? Are you ready? The age of dreams or past, as far as God revealing things to us, but I had a dream last night. I had a dream. And the dream of all things, you know how some dreams can, can be real, seem really real. And it had to do with tennis. And it had to do with the guy who just, after years of struggling, finally won the U.S. Open Tennis Championship, Andy Murray, who's only about 23 or 24 years of age. In the dream, they were getting ready to play another tournament, and the word comes out that there's been some natural disaster, and Andy Murray's caught up and just dies. And I was thinking, well, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And Derek, you're even in the dream. And I looked up to you, and I said, isn't that a tragedy for this man who gave his life of just playing tennis, and though he's not the number one or two, he's still worth $90 million. And so, isn't it a tragedy that this young man's cut out, and though you don't think Judgment Day is coming now, this man is going to stand before the living God, and he said, yeah, that's really tragic. 
And about that time, I woke up <laughs> and realized this was a dream. But, but it had to deal with the fact of this biblical truth that we are going to face judgment day. We hear of uh, notable people dying. Every time some notable uh, political figure, sports figure, rock star, I don't care who it is, that dies, it's just a reminder. We're all going to die, and we're all going to face the day of judgment. Are you ready? Are you a Christian? Have you repented of your sins? Because it's going to happen. What good did Jesus say to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? I don't care if you're worth a billion dollars. If you don't know Jesus, it's all going to be worthless on Judgment Day. And that day will get there sooner than you think. And it may be really sooner than you think because he can cut you off at a young age. And so... The whole point here is the resurrection is a reality, whether we acknowledge it or not. Now, all men will die. All men will face judgment. And those who die without Christ will go to hell. Now, we have an obligation to tell people. Turn with me to uh, uh, Ezekiel chapter 18. Look at verse 23. This is God speaking. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God. Rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. God has no pleasure in sending men to hell. Repent. Don't go there. That's what God's saying. Turn over to Ezekiel 33. Look at verse 8. This is the obligation, particularly of preachers. Ezekiel 33, verse 8. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. That was one of the parting verses that my great-great-grandfather, William Otis, gave to that little church in England. When he left, when he knew he was going to America, would never see them again. He says, for these 30 years that I've ministered with you, I have declared to you, and he quoted that verse, I would not be held accountable if I didn't open up the word of God, proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus. Uh, I am innocent of any blood. I have told you the way of salvation and pled with you to come to Jesus. You know, in that regard, I don't know how a sovereign God who has elected people from the foundation of the earth based on nothing that he foresaw in them as being good, I don't know how that fully reconciles with the fact that he demands men to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. I'm not sure how they all relate. But I do know the Bible teaches both very clearly. And so you know where I'll leave it? Right there. It doesn't matter 
that I have to figure it out. Now, does it? There is a Bible passage that has been uh, very helpful to me, and that's Isaiah 55, 7 and 8. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And therefore, because I can't understand two truths that seem to be uh, contradictory, theologically it's called, it's not just a paradox, it's called an antinomy. Jab Packer in his great book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, talks about that. Somewhere in the mind of God it all makes sense, and that's all that matters. What matters to me is i got to believe that there is nothing in me that deserves God's good pleasure, and that he saved me by his sovereign grace, and that ought to be life-changing. At the same time, I can't say, well, God's going to save the elect, and, and I don't have to do a thing. No, that's not true either. I've got to be concerned about the wicked. And if I don't tell the wicked that they're going to perish if they don't believe in Jesus, as a preacher, then their blood's on my hands. I'll be held responsible for failing to warn people. That's not the gospel preached today, unfortunately, in several places. The idea of preaching hellfire is outdated. Well, you, you're not going to draw. You're not going to have a lot of people come to your church if you if you talk to them about it. if you don't believe in Jesus, they're going to go to hell. Well, the point is, yeah, that's that's true. That's why preachers down through the ages preach that. That's part of the gospel. Jesus preached this. Repent. What did Jesus say? Repent or perish. Jesus says, repent or perish. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Therefore, we have to be faithful. You tell men the gospel, uh, this is what God has called us to do, and leave it to God for the results. The reality is this, men will rise from the dead. Some will rise uh, from the dead to be destroyed in hell. Some the saints will be raised from the dead to have eternal glory with the Lord Jesus forever. The truth is the truth regardless of what men believe. The scripture is true. There is a resurrection. Jesus is the Lord of glory. He is the great judge. And that day is coming. In our text, Paul says there's a problem with some of those that were denying the resurrection. They were asking two types of questions. One question is, can there be life from the dead? That was the first question they were asking. Second question is, what was the nature of that body after the resurrection? So part of their skepticism was the fact, what kind of body are you talking about that we're going to be raised with? Well, here's how he answers it. He answers the question in verse 37 and following. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but bear grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. Then verse 36, remember, he says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. A seed, in one sense, cannot live unless it dies, changes form. Would you, would you not agree, all right, we have a, 
a botany lesson. Would you not agree that there is a difference between the looking of a seed and a plant? Yeah, there's a difference between that. But you don't get the plant unless the seed is planted. Now, I don't do much farming, but I do know that. It's not going to do any good unless I put it in the ground. <laughs> and when it goes into the ground, it will sprout, and the seed will cease looking like that seed. But it will produce a plant. And so <clears throat> what we see here is death is not annihilation. Death is simply reorganization. And Paul is using this analogy of, the, of a grain of seed with the resurrection of the body. And so he, he's teaching that analogy only to demonstrate that our natural bodies, here's the analogy, our natural bodies must die in order for there to be a heavenly body. That's the normal sequence. Even in that rapture, that day when uh, those few will be around living at the time of Christ's coming, you could say, as we're going to preach on next week, there's a radical change instantaneously in the moment of twinkling of an eye. Once you're corruptible, the next moment, boom, like this, you are a resurrected body, glorified. That will be true of some at that coming of Christ. But the normal process is we've got to die first, and then in order to have a resurrected, glorified body. <clears throat> in this, the natural, corruptible body gives way to a heavenly, incorruptible body. How do I know that? The Bible tells me so. That's how I know that. Jesus told me that. Well, what about all those people that were blown up and they were scattered to who knows when or they were eaten by a shark and digested? What about that, God? Is that too hard for God to remember what you were like? The exact composition of you? Your form? Is that beyond the power of God? Remember, what did Jesus criticize the Sadducees for not believing in the resurrection? You don't believe the resurrection because you don't understand the scriptures and you deny the power of God. Is that too hard for God to know the pattern and to put you back together one day in a glorified body? I don't think it's too hard. Not for the sovereign God. God can and he will reorganize all the atoms that were you and will make it into an immortal, incorruptible body on the day of the Lord Jesus' coming. That is what he will do. As the scripture says, dust we came from and dust we will return. My good friend who God took for cancer, Charlie Marks, in Texas. We were really good friends. It was hard to see him die. But it was one of the most glorious deaths I have ever witnessed in my life. And one of the things Charlie says, I don't want any uh, fashionable coffin. In fact, he told his son built the coffin knowing he was going to die. They built a crate and he says, I don't want to be mummified. I want my body to decay just the way it was so I will return to the dust. 
knowing that one day God will raise me to eternal life with an incorruptible body. You know, as Scripture says, God will take that dust and will reconstitute it the way we were, but with glory, not corruption. Verses 38 and 39 here tells us, that God is the creator. Now, that he's talking about his power. God can do anything. And being the creator, it's not difficult for God to do reconstitute our bodies in a glorified way. And the point of these verses is that God is the one who decides what the body is going to be. Just like he determines what that plant is going to be. When that seed goes into the ground. What enters the ground may be a small seed, but what emerges is a beautiful plant. God is behind all of this. It is not our own doing. God is the mastermind behind it all. And verses 38 and 39, they're not intended to be a lesson in botany or zoology, but it does apply. And this is not a digression, though it may appear to be, but it applies this text. One of the great problems arising in the visible church today, and I've told you, is that this view of theistic evolution is gaining ground, unlike I've ever seen in the last 35, 40 years. It's gaining ground in areas you would not ever have imagined. That, here's what they're saying, essentially, with regard to man, is that God, that they are reinterpreting the Bible to fit into the evolutionary scheme. And here's what they're saying. Adam is not the first man. It should be interpreted, that place in the Bible should be interpreted in a way that he's the head of a tribal race of hominids, ape-like creatures, who one day God decided to put his image in them. That is Adam. Now, some of you are shaking your head like this, and you ought to be shaking your head like this. Is, That's crazy. If Why is this supposedly better than the fact that, of saying, what's so difficult about God taking dust and making man like that? as opposed to zapping some ape-like creature and making a man. We're going to see later, it really assaults the nature of Jesus, as we're going to see, to believe that. And they don't realize what's at stake in believing that. You know, what, what's happening is, there is, this view is nothing but a compromise, a compromise to atheistic evolution, because that's where it was born. And those who are pushing this, there's an evangelical organization. I only mention it because of this fact. I've told you about it before. It's called BioLogos. You can go on to BioLogos.com and you can read exactly what they say. And it will appall you. They claim to be evangelicals. And they are pushing hard for this idea of theistic evolution. But I have written them. I told them. As a pastor, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. 
the fact that you would even call yourself evangelical. And I've said, I will let you know this. I will oppose you on every level. I will expose you for what you are and the lies that you perpetrate. You are a danger, and brethren, they are one of the most dangerous organizations out there right now. They really and truly are one of the most dangerous because they are trying to bring evangelical Christianity to wed it to atheistic evolution. And the only reason is they want to do it. They have bowed their knee to Baal. Baal was the nature God, and that is what they're doing. And I'll call them idolaters because that's what they are. It must be opposed. Because what does the text say? Look at what the Bible says. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts. Stop right there. If you only had one verse, there it is. We did not come from the beasts. We are not animals. Yeah, there are similarities because we have a similar creator. But we're not animals. We are men made in the image of God at the outset. One flesh of beasts, one flesh of men. There is a flesh, another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There's no evolution between the classes. Uh, evolution teaches that... that Reptiles turned into birds through millions of years of mutations. It's crazy when you read it. I was a, I, I had a degree in zoology in college. Fortunately, I was a Christian. I understood it was lunacy to believe that. Animals, a reptile turns into a bird. You know, when I was in Corpus Christi, I'd go out by the, the, the bay to pray. His Corpus Christi was on the bay, and he had all these seagulls. There are times in my praying I was just marveling at these seagulls. How on earth does this creature fly? It just decides to get up and fly. How does this creature do it? Because there is one of like fish and one like birds. God created that animal from the start to fly. That's how. Now the whole purpose here in this is that the main point is that the resurrection of our dead bodies is an act of God. That's what he's trying to say in all this. It's an act of God. And although the body enters the ground, remains essentially a body, a glorious body will emerge, will it not, for the Christian? And at this all will happen at the second coming of Christ, at the last day, at the end of the world, when it all will happen. Now, Jesus. Now, you, you have no greater example than the Lord Jesus, right? Because Jesus <clears throat> had the same form in his resurrected body that he had before, did he not? Now, he did catch uh, some of the people by surprise. Because they weren't expecting a resurrection. But it didn't take long for Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, when they came to the empty tomb and they saw Jesus, at first she didn't recognize him because were they expecting anybody to rise from the dead? No. But it didn't take long for her to realize it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And she recognized him. 
And when, when Jesus came to the disciples, he said, is it not I? He, he said, go ahead, put your hands into the nail prints of my hands and put your hand on my side. It is I. They saw it was Jesus. He looked the same. Now, in this regard, you know, one of the amazing theological truths is this. You and I as saints, as Christians, are going to have glorified bodies. If you don't, I guess, look how you, like how you look, it's going to be a better day. <laughs> However, there is one unique man who, unlike, there's nothing in Scripture says you and I will have any kind of scars, but there is one who will forever have scars that you and I will be able to see. And that is the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus in his glorified body has the nail prints and the scar on his side. Why? I think it will always be a testimony in glory. This is what it took to redeem you, and I did it. If it wasn't for my death, you would not be here. And you and I will be able to gaze upon those scars and praise our Jesus for what he did. His body is a glorified body, and the scripture says we will have that kind of body. Philippians, uh, turn to Philippians 3. Look at verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. As we said earlier, it's not going to be too hard for God to reassemble us on the last day from the dust. By that great power that raised him from the dead, he will do that and will transform us into his glorious body. That's why First John says, we shall see him like he is, for we shall be like him. We will have a glorified body like him. Now, in this idea of Jesus having a body much like resembling his former body, what else was true about him? Well, it says that he, he ate fish. This glorified body ate fish with the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. This was a glorified body eating. Now, what's the difference in a glorified body now eating and our eating? Well, we have to eat to sustain life, don't we? If we don't eat, we'll die. Apparently, the glorified body can eat. And some of you don't go, I'll eat all those them, them desserts. Everyone I always wanted, I'll be able to eat. It said fish, not chocolate cake. <laughs> Just kidding. <clears throat> this is some of what the little thing filtering in, what this glorified body will be like. Well, we've got another analogy that he gives here in verses 40 and 41. He says, there also are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. 
There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for the star differs from star in glory. So is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. As the heavenly bodies differ in glory, in the glory of their brilliance, so is the difference between the earthly body and the heavenly one. One is corruptible. One is weak. One decays and returns to the dust. As Martha, Lazarus' sister, said to Jesus when he came to Bethany, and Jesus was going to talk to her about him rising from the dead, and and Martha says, Jesus, he's been in there four days. It will be a stench if you open up that tomb. The body is already decaying. Now, in one sense, we are recoiled. We're sort of horrified at a rotting corpse, are we not? Do you think that's kind of disgusting to look at, a rotting corpse? I think it would be. I mean, I haven't seen one. There have been others who have seen that. It's pretty disgusting. There is a great difference between that earthly body that you and I possess that will go through that process and the glorified body that is waiting for us. Just like the stars are greater in glory than others, so is the resurrected body far more glorious than this body. This body we have right now is glorious. The human body is an amazing uh, creation of God. Absolutely phenomenal, the human body. It is glorious. But it is not nearly as glorious as that which awaits us. That's his point. Sown in dishonor. He says here, verse 43, It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Sown in weakness. It is raised in power. We're weak. We're frail. We get sick, don't we? And we are subject to many kinds of diseases that can take us out at any time. That's the natural body. But there is a heavenly body awaiting us, it says. Sown in weakness, but raised in power. You know, one of the great passages in this regard, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And just look at verses 17 and follow, I mean, verse 7 and following of 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. 
knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but through our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now, brethren, that's an encouragement to you as you get older. (laughs) Or, you may be young, but afflicted with some disease that ravishes your body. And one of the things that God does through sickness, and when we pray for people who are sick, always keep this in mind, you don't know what the greater glory is. We pray for their healing, but it may be better spiritually for them and others that they may be sick and die. Do you ever think about that? Because a lot of good comes through the death of the saints. And one of the things when you're sick, you realize how frail life really is, don't you? The reality here is we are feeble creatures. But here's here's the glorious fact. Though the outward man is decaying, and getting weak. What is going on inside? It says, the inner man is being renewed day by day. And though your body is breaking down physically, spiritually, you are becoming more and more like Christ. And that's why it's always a wonderful thing to see some men or women in their older age Uh, who are Christians, whose bodies are not what they used to be, better Christians at age 90 than they were at age 40. Because they've grown in grace. And, 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 And the body will pass away, but you see, you'll get a new body, and you've had that grace of growing in grace. During all those years. That's what we should emphasize. Sown in weakness, but raised in power. And then he concludes, if we turn back as we end, verse 45 and following, just briefly he says, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Now one thing is emphasized here. That it says the first man, and then the apostle took trouble to identify the first man, Adam. That is another, I would use that verse as a refutation to those who believe in theistic evolution. No, God did not zap some ape-like creature with his image. No, he made man, Adam, is the Hebrew, Adam, the first man. He's not the head of some tribal race of ape-like creatures. No, there was no man, and God miraculously took dust and made Adam a human being. But then he breathed life into him. When I was in college, and as I said, I was a zoology major, one of my professors I don't know if he was a Christian, but he was a moralist. He did mention this to me. 
He said there was, uh, you know, of a scientist who didn't believe in God, but then became theistic. Didn't say he became a Christian, but he believed in God. You know what drove this renowned scientist to believe in God? The guy realized, he says, life is outside of the organism. Why do things live? He says, there was no answer to why something should live. And he realized, it has to be God. Adam was a living soul, but he was not a living soul until God, I think this is metaphorical, breathed into his mouth the breath of life. And this organism that he had created out of dust becomes alive because God did it. Now think about Adam. We, we have here Adam and Jesus are always pictured in the scriptures as the representatives of two types of people. And here what he is saying is that Adam is earthly but Jesus is heavenly. Where did Adam come from? The dust of the ground. Where did Jesus come from? Now, he did have a human mother. But the Son of God was in heaven and was incarnated in the womb of the Virgin Mary and became man. But the point here is, while Adam was a living soul, it says Jesus is a life-giving spirit. What was one of the things that Jesus did in his earthly ministry? He was giving life, was he not? He was performing miracles that were astounding people. People with no uh, withered limbs, restored. People who couldn't walk, being raised up. People who are dead, Jesus speaks and they come alive. He's a life-giving spirit. Did not Paul say in verse 22, 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Jesus is that great life-giving spirit. We will live because Jesus lives. We will live again Because on that great last day of human history, Jesus, when he comes back, says he will come back with a shout. Remember what he said to Lazarus? Lazarus, come forth! And he came forth. When Jesus descends, it will be with the shout of our angels. Come forth, my people. Boom! We will instantaneously, out of the grave, come out. And those alive at that coming, as it says, we'll look at it next week, will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And we will always be with the Lord. Brethren, the resurrection makes all the difference. Without it, life is meaningless. But praise God. It's all true. Why? Because the Bible says so. Let us pray.